Hey guys, thanks for listening to another episode of the Rough Stuff Podcast. We've got a killer welding and fabrication Q&A for you today with three industry experts. This podcast went on so long, we had to cut it into two episodes. This is the first episode, which mostly focuses on fabrication, so make sure to follow up in a few weeks for the second half where we answer your welding questions. We hope you enjoy this podcast, and please send us feedback on our social media accounts or email us podcast at roughstuffinc.com. This is Rough Stuff Podcast number six with me, Garrett, and I've got Mallory here. Hello. And our guests today are Dan Trout, Kevin Kirkard from WFO Concepts. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. And uh, Joe Thompson from UFO Fabrication. What's up, guys? Morning. Morning. So uh, the reason we wanted to have you guys on is we originally reached out to Dan to do a fabrication welding Q&A. And then uh, you, Dan, suggested we also have Kevin and Joe talk about this episode. So I think this is going to be pretty rad because there's a lot of people out there that are going to have that have a lot of uh, just fabrication questions. I think you guys can answer for us. So uh, Dan Trout, can you explain a little bit of your background in welding and fab, and also your history in the off-road industry? Uh, I started in high school. My my brother was kind of responsible for that. He's five years ahead of me, and he had a metal shop. So when I got to school, that's that was my main focus. I didn't really, I didn't like school. Got picked on a lot, and wasn't very good at sports. Just I, as soon as I stepped into that into that building, that's that's where I wanted to be. I would come in before school and and weld. I would come in during lunch and weld. If my teacher stayed late, then I'd I'd stay there and weld as long as I could. Then I left school, ended up at a a continuation school where they had a machining ROP program. Got set up with a uh, a sheet metal shop. Was I seven seventeen? And stayed there f- five five years or so. Ended up starting my own company at night when I was twenty. And what is that? That's fourteen years ago. Wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend anybody going that that route. But, <laughs> was that B and B out in Rancho? Yep. Yeah. And twenty years old, you started, right? You said. Yep. Dang. That's impressive. Yeah, I don't, I don't recommend that. In business, but not in fab. Yeah. Fish mile started. Yeah, in twenty. I was doing side work out of that shop. It's two two thousand five, and then two thousand seven. I just had enough and being hard-headed and young and thought I knew knew everything that's what I wanted to do and I wouldn't change anything but do you think a lot of that change had to do with wanting to be your own boss no I think I've always been individual like I'm not a team team sports guy mm-hmm. so it's just do your own thing yeah and then what about um how did you get into off-road so, we, you know, you became a fabricator and were welding for a long time. What made that change for you? My brother had a 72 K5 Blazer, and his friend across the street was building, I think it was this, it was an early Bronco. I don't remember what year, but I watched both of them build that throughout their, their four years in high school. And by the time they were done, it was fully restored and it was baby blue and had 38 uh, SX swampers on it. Uh, 
And at that time, that thing was a monster truck. This was 90, 98, 97 probably. I was like, that's that's really cool. And then my, my friend Ryan's dad had a uh, 80, early 80s blazer with 35s on it that we'd go go down to the river and, and drive around in. And then he got a, a Jeep Cherokee his sophomore year. And I ended up getting my Toyota uh, junior, my junior year, so 1980 Toyota pickup. And every every weekend I was cutting something off of that thing and rebuilding it. My dad come out and, what are you doing? You got to drive that to school tomorrow. And like, <laughs> I got the back axle out of it and leaf springs are all out of it. And just figured it out. And then, um, so Kevin, I know we know each other briefly from the industry, but I don't know really a bunch about your history. Like what got you in the off-road? How long have you been with WFO? Like what's your background? It's, I mean, not as good, not as, uh, well, as much welding as Dan and Joe, but I started with construction. Uh, my dad owned a construction company, but he wouldn't let me work for him. So he put me on one of his, uh, framing, framing crews and kind of just built homes from there. And I loved, I love framing. I love building something from the ground up to see the final product. Uh, so I started and just throwing a hammer around and then kind of dabbled on the side. A buddy and I bought an eighties toy to pick up and I built my first cage, one of those pump jacks from Harbor Freight, the little orange things that pinches it in the, in the middle threw it together with some, uh, I mean, I even left the weld, the, uh, threads on the end, you know, just notched the threads and right to it. It was ugly, atrocious. Um, kind of dabbled in it, never really got into it, did that for many years. <clears throat> and then, um, 2005-ish, you know, when something, when the economy started going down a little bit, kind of got out of it. And uh, my buddy just left WFO to go do an AutoCAD, Phil Blurton at No Limit. He's like, hey, there's an opening here. You might want to go try it out. I'm like, all right, I'll try something different. And um, I didn't want to be there. For, well, I did not want to be there. I just didn't expect to be there for more than three, five years or something. Just kind of a jumper. 13 years later, I'm still there. And... Uh, shop manager lead fabricator do all the design stuff now and we have a shop of 15 ish guys and uh just kind of worked its way up from there so i mean i did the you know the wedding school in uh high school did the auto shops through my whole entire high school and college and all that kind of stuff but um the off-road just kind of kind of fell into it a little bit and then just love building with my hands so it's just created from there do you have any personal builds yeah i got a Really sweet Toyota. Um, <laughs> I loathe. Uh, built, I mean, I can, we can, all three of us, we can build whatever we want, but it's always like the contractor always has the worst home. You know, the master fabricator <laughs> always has the worst vehicle at home. Yeah. So it's just, I just, uh, we just haven't gone around to build one yet, but hopefully soon we can, I can build something for myself yeah. much better. Just never have any time. Never have time to build something for yourself. Yeah. When Garrett built his 83 Toyota, I think maybe we took it out. I don't know, less than 10 times mm -hmm. over a really, really long period of yeah. time. It's people, kind of sad. Yeah. People always like, you work at a fab shop. You must go camping every weekend. Yeah. Mm -mm. No, well, I go on the big trips three times employee. a year for that. It's like, yeah. the, you know, the majority of the employees that um, they get to have more fun. They have the most like. fun. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And then, uh, Joe. Yeah. What's your background in off-road fab and, and what's uh, like UFO, UFO fab and what do you do? What do you specialize in? Yeah. So uh, I kind of got a later start than these two guys, actually, even though I'm the old side of all of them. But uh, early on, I was a BMX Grom. So I was a big BMX rider when I was a kid. And uh, I had a local company that 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 was building bikes in Oakland. So and I kind of 
I didn't ride for them, but you know, they were all in my local group. And so, um, I was very aware of fabrication and TIG welding and, you know, they were all, you know, kind of a, kind of a badass bike. Right. So, um, at a very early age, I, I bought my own TIG welder. Uh, my story is kind of, kind of similar to dance. I dropped out, you know, when I was a sophomore and, um, pretty much went right to work and bought a TIG welder and just started welding junk. Like I didn't, I was totally self-taught. And then I, uh, got hooked up with a family friend who owned a, like a high purity stainless business, um, which is all, all TIG welding, all high end stuff. And so I got thrown into the wolves with some really, really good welders right away. And that guy who I first worked with was, he was meticulous. So there was no room for error at that shop. And so everything he taught us or taught me was it had to be, there was no, there was no room for, Oh, it's just okay. You know? So I kind of got that pushed into me kind of early on. And, um, I went on to like, you know, build some bike frames and that kind of stuff as I got a little older and I worked at some more fab shops doing, you know, doing more high end, you know, you know, type TIG welding and fabrication. And then slowly branched off and doing cages for race cars and Harley junk and a whole bunch of random stuff. At the same time that was all going on, I was heavily immersed in, in design. So I suspension is one of the things that is like a passion of mine. So even from an early age, I was doing mountain bike suspension design of my own stuff. I wasn't like building it for anybody, but you know, it was a huge area of study. So then as time went on and I got more into cars and, and that kind of stuff, um, I really started to apply more of that and, you know, uh, some pieces of the puzzle fell into place where I was able to get in a position to do something for this guy or do something for that guy in a car. And then all of a sudden it led to a car. Then, you know, uh, I met the Gomez brothers at a race one time. They had a problem with one of their cars. I said, I'll fix that for you. And they didn't take, take me seriously at first. You know, they kind of like, Oh, who is this guy? You know? And I'm like, you know, I can fix it for you. It took like four or five, you know, I'll fix it for you before they, <laughs> Let me fix it and then you know, kind of rest of history. Then they let me get built some cars and, you know, here we are. That's cool. Yeah. So how, how do you all three know each other? Is it off-road an industry or was it, I know you, you're in the BMX, but Dan, you were in the BMX back in the day too, right? Uh, let, let me start. So I've always been a fan, even though I'm the oldest. So I used to follow Dan on Pirate. As did I. Yeah. You always know? follow so, Dan. Fish mouth. Yeah. We all. He, he shakes his head like he's all <laughs> modest and stuff. But, you know, uh, I remember way back before ever. I mean, I remember, you know, he built 30 freaking cars. I've only built eight. Right. I mean, to put it in perspective, right. I'm 49. How old are you, Dan? Oh, 35. Yeah. So that's a pretty big difference in age there. Right. So he's got a lot more cars in his belt and he, and Kevin's done a ton of stuff as well. I mean, he's done way more. If you count total sheer volume of things that they've built, like I'm like the, even though I'm the oldest, I've got the lowest number. Right. So Kevin's always been at WFO, which I've known him forever from there. And, um, yeah, so he's, built a ton of cars. I've always been a fan. That's all I'm trying to say. So Dan Trout is your hero. He's my that's hero, basically. Yeah, okay. that's He's what I'm saying. He's my hero, yeah. too. So I can chalk one up for me, too. Yeah, it's, it's always a... We actually Thanks. have an employee. I won't I won't um, out him, but he <clears throat> is a huge fan of yours. And um, Garrett let him know that you were going to be on the podcast. And he was like, oh, I follow him on Instagram. <laughs> so basically, we're all here because of Dan. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're yeah, all pretty excited. One thing kind of off topic I wanted to ask you, did you know Rough Stuff started as a mountain bike company? No. It originally, because you started in yeah. fabricating mountain bikes. Um, Dan Fredrickson, our 
original owner, he started it with a couple guys in like the 80s, like the 80s and yeah. they were building mountain bike frames. So if you actually look what at our logo. What was the name of the company? It was Rough Stuff. So if you it look was. at our logo, yeah. those tires, the, they have they used to have spokes. Yeah. And they, actually, yeah, do the they still? And they used to be mountain bike tires. So That's um, cool. then it kind of fizzled out. Dan did like River Guide and all these E-Trade and you can go listen to our first podcast, yeah. <laughs> but um, that that tells the origins of rough stuff. But then he circled back and got into off-road. So it's just kind of funny that, you know, you guys can have a conversation later about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I never dabbled with uh, building bikes, but I was mountain bike my whole life, BMX and everything. So I think we all started from and the same. trout rides too. Yeah. He has in the past. Yeah, I, I started with, with BMX also and... I was actually just thinking about that. Some solid, solid bikes it used to be ran by Aaron Huff. I would, we would go ride over in Roseville where their their first shop was, and I remember going inside and seeing their CNC machines, and they had hail in the back, and he was welding frames together, and that was another thing. Like, oh, I'll just I'll build bike frames. Like, I wasn't really thinking about off road at that time, but that's I kind of knew of Joe. A while ago because Ventana mountain bikes was across the street or not across the street, across the parking lot from B and B. And I remember hearing his name over there from one of the guys that used to work there, but they built really, really nice aluminum mountain bike frames. So what we did is we posted on social media and we let people know we were going to have some experts on the podcast. And we said, what do you guys want to know about welding fabrication and these are the questions they came up with. So one of the first ones I think um, you'll, Joe, be very excited is link geometry. So um, three-link versus four-link practicality on street-legal rigs as well as full-blown race cars. So, I mean, these are open for all of you guys to answer, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess I'll start real quick. So um, I'm, a, I'm a big, uh, you know, be clear of your end end use kind of person. So... If someone just says a blanket question, what's better, four link or three link? That's not a real question. You have to really ask yourself what the vehicle is going to be used for ultimately, and you got to be real specific about it because people kind of will shortchange what they're going to do. Oh, I'm going to build this Jeep on 35s. I'm going to build it with 40s. I'm going to add all this stuff. You, you need to be very clear on what your end goal is. So if you have the end goal clear in mind, then um, you know let's just say it's going to be should be a street driven rig. Uh, it's going to be a, a three link with a pan hard in the front and a steering box and. Um, you know, possibly a four link in the back, uh, some good sway bars and you're good to go. You know, um, if it's a race car. It's going to be four link all the way around. If it's a straight axle car, if it's IFS, it'll be IFS in the front and four link in the rear and, you know, pretty, pretty straightforward. And, and also, I mean, the reality is too, is if it's just a leaf spring car rig, there's nothing wrong with that either. I mean, I, you can have just as much fun in a leaf spring car as you can a, a lint car. Do you think leaf springs get a bad rap? Well, is that pun that, that's a pun intended, right? <laughs> I guess um, so, yes. I didn't really see that one coming. I, I think a leaf spring car's rig is good as long as it's set up properly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen some leaf spring rigs just make Link rig look stupid yeah, so on the trail. We, yeah, so we. So, Back to those Toyotas again. Yeah, all Toyotas. Sprung. All day long. <laughs> you know, Jason Shears, CJ, that he uses the pre-run end is sprung under in yeah. the front. With the mm-hmm. uh, trailing arm four link in the rear bypasses, so you got bypasses with air shocks in the front. That thing will outrun like half the ultra four field. Such, <laughs> such a clean CJ. And well, it, and it holds his whole family. Well, hold on, <laughs> that's also him driving too. Yeah, exactly. He so, would outrun the whole ultra four field in a, a go kart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Anyone else have any? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, what about like link geometry design? I know that's like a pretty, like when, when you're new to building suspension, the first thing you do is go online you start researching because that's the resource that you have. I mean, what, what have you guys found to be true and not true, I guess, with, with that kind of information? So I was, <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's nice nowadays with the companies like, you know, Rust Up, WFO, and all of us who are making parts for the end user that we've kind of already figured it out for you in a way where here's the truss you're going to run, here's the link mount, here's what the kind of setup. So it's kind of, you're taking the dummy work back in the day, you know, 15 years ago, we're all trying to figure it out and just cutting some flat strap, rounding the edges, drilling a hole and mount it where it fits and see where, what happens. But nowadays you have cross members already built. So it's pretty plug and play in a way where you're not trying to figure too much out. Like, have you, have you guys, I, I doubt you guys have like been online and like researched that in a long time, but like, if you go online and like look up like four link kit, there's a lot of stuff that's like, oh, make, you know, your upper link needs to be 70% of your lower link. Or, um, there's like all these rules, like, you know, the, the, the gap between the lower link and the upper link on the axle side needs to be, uh, whatever, 25% uh, of the tire diameter or something like that. I remember. And I, 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 I remember calling up actually Dan when I built my first four link and he's like, it's pretty hard to mess up a four link. I'm like, okay. And like <laughs> built it that night, you know, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, it's really easy to overthink it with all that information online. And oh, definitely. I get those phone calls all the time. Like I put this thing in the calculator online. I'm like, oh God, just yeah, stop right now. You're overthinking way too much right now. I, I see those calculators. I'm not even just, yeah. I'm I just so real quick. I've never even, I never have. used one. No, yeah. Dan, um, I haven't used the calculator what... either. Mm-mm. Depending on what website you go on, they're not all the same either. So <clears throat> that doesn't help either. I do have a general rule, though. I don't know if Dan can chime in on this, but I definitely use a, a general starting point. My is like a 20% rule. So if it's, uh, you know, if it's it's like separation, talk, you know, link separation, for example, if it's a four link in the rear, um, the front distance vertically will might, might be 20% less than the rear. That's kind of like my starting point. And then I'll fine tune that a little bit there. So if it's 10 inch separation in the rear, you know, the back axle, it'll be eight inches in the front, you know, something of that nature. Mm -hmm. And then I'll kind of tweak it from there to get the thing to do what I want to do. But that's like a general basic rule I use in the back. And then the other general rules I use is I make the links as long as I possibly can in the rear, but that's from a go go fast perspective, you know, so you don't, that's not necessarily always the best case, you know, from a, from a crawling perspective. It goes back to like your intent, right? Yeah, your yeah. intent. Yeah, what you're yeah. trying to get done. Can the, one of you guys explain um, anti squat versus squat? Joe, Sus suspension. Dan, guru. they're just pointing at each other. <laughs> I wanted to ask that because I remember when I was first trying to do my four link. The first thing you go to is online. Then you you know you're looking up the calculator and just kind of playing with that. And they, you know, you run the number and it's like, oh, you have a 50% anti-squat. And it's like, what's that percent mean? Like to what? Does that mean like it's going to come down halfway or so? I'm sure other people have the same question. That's why I wanted to bring it up. I do. I don't remember a whole lot of it, but I, I do remember if you had 100% anti-squat, I believe that was neutral, basically. Is that right? I, I don't remember it being that way, but I'm not sure. So how do you guys then, like, so how do, they, how do you then, do you just set up your suspension cycle or do you just know like, Hey, I've done this so many times. This is like my baseline. I know this is what I, this is what I want. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. So like on the anti-squat thing, so obviously it's, 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 it's kind of simple, really. There is really, it's really not that tough. The shorter the links, um, and the, the, uh, the closer your chassis mounts are together vertically, the more anti-squat you're going to get which also equals wheel hop if you really want to get really crude about it, right? So 
Um, how hard it's planting the tire. How hard it's planting the tire. So the torque reaction that you're going to have. So when the wheel is trying to rotate, if you have 100% traction, for example, and the wheel is trying to rotate, if the link is short and the uh, and the front chassis mounts are close together, it'll act as a, as a unitized swing arm, for example, and it will want to it basically wants to jack the back of the car up in the air or or bring the tires up under the car. Like when you throw it in gear and the whole thing just springs up three inches. Yeah. So if you put in low range and you hold the brakes on, that that whole, you know, where the, the, the back end is trying to come down, that's that's anti-squat. So, um, you know, if you go the other way where the links mounts and the chassis are far apart from each other. Like a parallel. Yeah, parallel or even reversed. Mm-hmm. Then when you get on the gas, the, the, the rear of the car will sink to the ground. And then you'll actually have virtually no traction because, you know, if you're trying to climb a ledge, the tire has nothing. It's just, it's just got its own weight kind of holding against the rock and it has nothing to help kind of drive it into the face of the rock. And so then you end up just spinning your tires everywhere you go. So having that balance of, 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 of torque reaction and a free moving suspension is kind of like what people are shooting for on a, on a rock crawler. And really it's not that crazy. Like you can like, I think what Dan was saying, you could before you can definitely uh, do a parallel setup, and it'll still work really freaking good unless you do something really dumb. So you know, as long as you have just a little bit of link separation difference from the front to rear, front being smaller, I'm talking about front of the rear axle, you know, um, chassis side, then you're pretty much going to be okay as long as you don't really screw the numbers up by going to either really short on your links or overly long or something like that, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that works. It's just what works better for what you're trying to do. And there's a lot of stuff that's, that on paper shouldn't work. But it does. But it does. You know. Real life versus. There's plenty of those rigs running around that, that do amazingly well with some that should not. You're like, oh, that's not going to work. And uh, yes, it does. And you just walk away. And it's, and it's purpose built too because like, you know, the moon buggies, they might want that that squat, that traction differently or something. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Suspension from a competition rock crawling buggy is completely different from an ultra four car. You're just, you're trying to do two completely different things. Yeah, yep. if you're throwing in a Jeep, daily driven, and then you know on the weekends going out, it's a completely different rig. Exactly. You just don't share that one 12 inch long bolt on under your frame. Just right. separate it a little bit inside the frame, bottom of the frame should be just fine. Yeah. Actually, talking about the four link and three link, on like a three link, the four link I feel like again is pretty easy to do for like a like simple like rock crawler. It's pretty basic, right? The three link in the front with the steering and all that other stuff going on, I feel like is way more complicated. So do you guys want to like go into that at all? Like what you, how you would design like a, a three link with steering with roll steer or bump steer? It's just a lot more moving parts. That's the only more, thing that makes it more complicated. You know who's an expert in that one right there? Kevin. Kevin. <laughs> Such Kevin, a pain. This is all Keep you, buddy. Such a pain. You can take this one. There is so much more work in a front end than a rear end. Rear end, you can literally just slap together. I mean, those mounts can go wherever you want, pretty much. Unless you know, the motor's with, with in the, the back. Reason. Unless, what I don't do that. <laughs> you guys, another world there. Uh, but the front, with the three link, it's, it's you get your get your lower set, get your, your axle set, get your steering kind of set up. Um, and that upper link, it's it kind of shares the same values as in the rear where you want that separation on the frame, separation on the axle. Um, and you're going to be more straighter with those three links instead of, you know, you're not going to triangulate that third link and you're going to not get bound up with that pan hard bar. It's pretty much a parallel four link, but a parallel three link in a way, but you're dropping that one on the frame a little bit lower. Um, and then you definitely always want with the steering box, you want your track bar to be the same angle. If you, if those track bars and the drag links aren't the same angles, you'll be getting a bunch of bumps here and it's going to react and, and go all over the road with you. 
Um, and when you're crawling too. And when you're crawling, when, you, when be... you're crawling, you put some steering input. It'll make the suspension move up and down and do weird stuff. Three links the easiest to mess up, I would say. Easy yeah. to mess up, and I always love it when I see three link like front and rear, and they put the track bar the same way or the pan hard bar the same direction. So when they go up something, the whole vehicle just shifts over to the right or left instead of you know. And if you look at a TJ, they're they're Opposite off of each, each other. other, so when they go up, it stays neutral. Yeah, when I set up mine, the way the way I fi figured it would work the best was, um, I, uh, you know, I started tacking everything together, have multiple hole mounts, and started cycling it. And I set it up at ride height, and uh, I think I cycled it up to and to limit how much reaction that caused the steering box. Because I figured if it's at full droop, it's like who cares? Because um, that's a max travel I'm number. jumping or something, right? Yeah. yeah it's, it's like droop. There's not, like, there's not force coming back into the box. It's more of a, uh, anti-squat. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it seemed to work, work well. I didn't have like a lot of feedback in my, my steering. Yeah. And the front too, also you got to look at painting angles cause you know, if you, wherever you mount that link and you can kind of mock it up with, you know, PVC or whatever you have laying around, just kind of C clampers of the frame and then cycle the travel of the, of the, of the axle and see where it goes. And that painting can either, if it's too too short, it's gonna it's gonna drop that pinion. If it's too long, it's gonna pivot up in your motor or something like that. So there's a happy medium where you want to create that axe, and that's why like a parallel four link, it's gonna stick. You know, it's gonna stay where it's at throughout the trial. I mean, it's gonna go up and down, but it's gonna point towards the ground as it comes all the way at full droop. Radius arm, you're gonna keep it pretty much pointing right at the T case, so you're gonna get better driveline angles in the front. We've been doing, I hate to say it, but a lot of radius arms on a lot of the bigger trucks just because it kind of acts like its own sway bar you just have two points of the frame and then your uppers dive right into it and they're not massive travel either they're not massive travel 8 yeah, 10 so, 12 inches so max you correct me if i'm wrong but like a, a radius arm setup is great for a street driven rig that doesn't mm -hmm. have a huge amount of travel numbers because it gives good street manners correct great street manners yeah but it doesn't climb worth a shit no no it's not the best off-road uh you can always undo one like the driver's side front or you know driver's side upper and then you can go for the weekend it's kind of like a three link then in a way and it flexes a little bit better get back on the road throw it back in there um well you go back to the a three link with an individual upper and it should be it should be flat or slightly inverted when it's sitting at right height because yep. if you have it pointed if it's pointed down same as your lower links to a point where when you pull up to a wall and you're trying to go up it the chassis is just going to separate from the axle and it'll go until it hits the straps or it bottoms the shocks out and then it'll start climbing like you watch stock tjs or um cherokees mainly don't they don't insult don't, the cherokee they, <laughs> come on they get enough <clears throat> they, <laughs> they don't they don't climb very well and those come stock with radius arms but if you switch it and you put an individual upper link on there and you have it perfectly flat or slightly inverted and you pull up to a wall, the axle will want to suck itself up to the chassis, which will then climb up without lifting the front of the car. Just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I I know the answer to this, but I know some people, I've gotten this question a few times, but with like a, a normal steering box, like why would you do a three link versus a four link? <clears throat> You can't. You, yeah, right. you can't do a four link in the front with a steering box. Right. It's, it's going to, well, you, you, okay, you can. Okay, some people you have can. done it. You can. And, you and can. it doesn't work very well. You but. can if you get crazy. But yeah. Then the, then it gets really overly complicated. But go ahead. I'm, I'm just was interrupting with, with. No, it's. No, go ahead. 
No, I was, I was, the three link just works the best because everything's traveling together. When, when the cycle of the suspension goes up and down, you can't have an axle that goes straight and then your box is, wants to turn your tire. So you're binding everything all at the same time. Um, Needs to move in the same arc. Yeah. In short, if you have a four link in the front and a steering box, as the axle goes up and down, you will get bump steer. Unless you do something crazy where the with the with the drag link going front to rear versus side mm -hmm. to side, which then you're in, opening a whole new can of worms. Yeah. Well, you can do a four link, a parallel four link, but you can't do a triangulated four link. Correct. The triangular four link is going to keep you straight up and down. The parallel well, parallel four link is not really a four link. Be like a, that'd be like a it's parallel four link. It's actually a five link. Would be like well, a yeah, yeah, a whole, the whole entire setup. Yeah, five link with the we're gonna be We're going to be precise here, Kevin. Okay? Yeah. That would be like a Jeep, like TJ or JK like style <laughs> suspension, right? Yeah. Talking about? Yes. Parallel. Okay. A lot of the TJs, they, I mean, Rubicon Express, they come, you know, radius arm. But then you can upgrade and do different stuff, too. Well, that's 20 minutes on one yeah. question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the next one is uh, some. They, this person wanted to hear some tech talk. I know it'll be hard without visuals, but uh, suspension and axle com uh, comparisons would be a good start. I want to hear Leafs versus coils versus coilovers versus air shocks, stuff like that. Yeah, purpose built again. It really depends on what you want, like the end goal. If it's a rock car, daily driver, or moon buggy, or what. I'm not a big fan of the air shocks. I mean, I don't ever really use them in my world. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a fan either. I, I think they worked better for the comp buggies, just because if you didn't have a coil wrapped around the outside, you could tuck it in tighter against things and not really have to worry about hitting things. I've never tuned them or messed with them, but can you tune an air shock? I think, yeah, I think it's it's nitrogen pressure and, and the amount of oil that you put yeah. inside oil, of it. Oil level height can change okay. changes the progression. Rise, right? really, yeah. Yeah. But I think I think they're right though. If it's a full body rig, I wouldn't ever even ever consider an air shock ever. Mm. It's gonna have to. It's gonna be a coilover. Um, Your comp buggies, but but just slow slow moving things. I would yeah I would consider an air shock. That's yep. about all it's good for. Exactly. What about the uh, coils? I mean, you guys even mess with coils, really? Or is it coils, coils work. I work with a lot of coils. Um, you know, our Jeeps and all that kind of stuff use coils all the time. But you're limited on travel because you're only going to get so much extension out of that coil before it comes popping out of your pocket. Uh, so, it's. I mean, I'll use them on the bigger trucks, you know, a coil and a really nice shock or a simple shock. It could be a bypass to a 2.0 Rancho or something like that. But it depends on what you're doing, daily driving or, or rallying your truck on the weekends. But, yeah, the coils, you're really just limited to, you know, until that separates fully then then you're depending on your shock and and, and I, I can't explain this from from a technical aspect because i haven't really thought about it a whole lot but a coil does offer a different style of ride as well because the the way that it's bigger the spring the way mm -hmm. the spring progresses in its in its travel is different than a leaf, than a leaf spring i think a leaf spring is more progressive right mm -hmm. so um a coil will tend to offer a a, a linear a, like a new more plush ride throughout the travel um, just because the spring is maybe more linear. Does that sound right? I mean, you can get progressive rate coils too, but yeah, you're linear. It's it's just the same rate. Yeah. I mean, I remember you saying it the wrong way, but like a leaf spring, yeah. for example, a leaf spring might be soft initially, but they get stiff pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And they, they have that harsh feeling where it's coil spring has that plush kind of reactive feel through, you know, from full bump to full mm -hmm. droop, you know? I don't know if that's, you, you don't talk about Dan or am I speaking Greek right now? Um, you can, you can tune leaf springs which I believe you change the rate by well, it's how many leaves are in the pack and how thick each leaf is and how long they are. And how long the shackle is, too. And, and, that, and the position yeah. of the shackle, too. Mm -hmm. And where that's pivoting. 
but I think most people don't use like for Joe and I've in our world, you don't, you don't use a normal coil because now you're the coil is such big diameter and then you have to have a shock somewhere and you can't get the amount of travel out of it that you need. So a normal standalone coil would be more for trail rig or daily driving vehicles. If you didn't have a limit strap on it and you held, because I had Aerostars on my Toyota a long time ago and it made these aluminum pucks that held it to the um, the mount on the axle and the mount on the frame. I was 17 year old and I didn't know what limit straps were. Just let the shock bottom out and stretch that thing to like 30 inches and then you'd come off the rock and it would still be leaning on one side because you stretched it past its fatigued. Yeah, it's just fatigued and back and forth. But Kevin, did you ever see that Toyota I built way back when? That uh, no limit cut up that had the crazy coils on it? No. I thought for sure you'd send that one. I cantilevered the coils. It was like a I used um like an Aerostar coil, like you're saying, or something like that. I can't remember uh-huh. what I used, but I cantilevered the coils to get more travel out of it. It all and it was a four link. So you put layer. it on a link or something? I did a four link uh-huh. with a and I mounted the coil forward of the axle. Mm-hmm. So changing your rates completely then. Yeah. It was it was it was I was I was like, you know, doing something Trying stupid. stuff. Yeah. Mad scientist. Guys. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, Phil ended up cutting it apart. Like he took the whole back end of the car out. I don't know what he, I think it went somewhere For else. For that but... reason, probably. Cause it didn't work. Oh no, <laughs> it, 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 it worked. It was, it was, it was a little, it's like, it, Oh God, no, it was a little bit floppy. It was a little yeah. bit floppy, but, um, it did, it actually will pretty good. Yeah. And I've always heard that too. I mean, I, I haven't really dabbled in, but like the cord ellipticals, he's got at least bring in half pretty much bolt, you bolt it to the frame and then, you know, you you flip the spring upside down and, and you go down to the axle and that is also tipsy too. But I, I did mean, one of those two. It's not very good. Well, that was, that was used a lot in the early rock crawling mm-hmm. days before coilovers became prominent. That was a way to get really big travel out of it. Cause the, you cut that leaf spring in half and you made a, you made a box that the center pin held it in. And then there was a bolt that it pivoted on. So when it drooped out, the springs weren't under any load. It would go yeah. as, as long. A lot of droop. A lot of droop. Sloppy. Yeah. <laughs> That's what everybody's going for. Sloppy and tipsy, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but none of us do anything back then. It was just, oh, we can go to the junkyard and grab this stuff and put it on. And mm-hmm. yep. there it is. Yeah. Um, actually, think that, that Toyota got me thinking of another question Zach actually had for Dan. There was a Toyota mid-engine car you built mm. years the legend. ago the legend. the legend yeah and we want to know what happened to that the Hilux thing. and dan doesn't like talking about it, just so you know like he's uh, already he's already getting <laughs> wasn't that supposed to be like in the first koh is that what you're doing with that or what no, was it? well i got i was building it before that it was a uh once again 1980 toyota first gen and i had built a whole it was a plate subframe it's all at an eighth inch plate, dig welded together and had rock wells. Wasn't going to be, it was just front steer. It wasn't going to be four wheel steer. And I put a uh, mid-engine 454 in it with turbo 400. It was an Atlas with two and a half inch coilovers. It was just something I had built in my head and I think I had, I was on the internet one day and I saw pictures of Robbie Gordon's mid-engine trophy truck. So this, that was, I think in, 2006 2007 and he had a whole plate subframe I was like i'm gonna do that but for a rock crawler 
and started doing that. I think that truck actually brought me a whole lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And then in, I didn't end up finishing it, but in 2009, Dave Cole called me, and that's that's how I got my first invite to uh, to KOH because in 07 and 08 it was invite invite only, and then we got down to the lake bed. I ended up borrowing my friend Travis's car that uh, I had built for him, and we converted it from a Calrox comp buggy into a KOH car, or what we thought would be a KOH car. But it, I ended up finishing it. Yeah, or I sold it to Slee Off-Road in, um, I think he was in Colorado. And then he ended up selling it to, I think there's a guy in Washington that has it now. It's, it's blue and gold. He did finish it though, right? Um, like yeah, it. they cut a whole bunch of stuff off of it, which, I mean, back, if I knew what I know now, back then it would have been totally, totally different. But it, it looks nice now. It doesn't have rock wheels in it. It's, I think, a 14 bolt and a 60. Or no, it's got spider tracks housings in it. But at, at the time, it was innovative, though. Oh, at yeah. the time, it, was, like, it, it, was made, a lot of, it made a lot of ways. And of mm-hmm. course, he, Dan would post, like, a, on Pyre, he'd post a picture of, like, just the back section and then not leave any comments. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's like, what the? You know? Jeff Page just later, he'll chime in with, like, a little. Eh. Well, I started building it, and I had I didn't pay any attention to. Like when you build a mid-engine car now and you take the diffs and you flip them upside down to make it drive the correct direction, well, Rockwell, it drives from the top and then has its own basically ring and pinion and then drives the bull gear underneath. And I forget, I had a, had a friend who used to build, you know, heavy truck differentials and he was over there one day and he was like, this, this is going to drive backwards. So what? <laughs> so this, this isn't going to turn the right way. Well, you need to flip the flip the pinion um, pinion gear over. So I had to take we took those out. He took them apart for me. Ended up giving them to uh, machine shop guy across the uh, parking lot, and we opened up one side for the bearing to fit. Because one side was smaller than the other, and then he machined a spacer and we put it in the other side and then flipped the pinion over. And now it could drive the correct direction. But that's the same thing. You just start so are you saying that originally the car would have driven backwards? Yep. Yeah, I would have just put okay. a sticker over R, and now D is R, and you have three <laughs> reverse gears. Three Leave reverse it. and one forward. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like that that vehicle was like the first like weld porn, like or fab porn. Yeah. On yeah it was like I think you had dimple dyes back then too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did have I did have a few dimple dyes in it. <laughs> no, there's there's there was a lot of dudes building some pretty cool stuff back then. Um, okay, next comment and question. Um, this guy I wanted to talk about link lengths, wheelbase, cross member fab. Um, like a little sub question on there I, I threw in was how do you guys decide like wheelbase when building a chassis? I have a I have a ratio that I won't disclose through track width <laughs> and and wheelbase, but that's pretty pretty much where you need to start. They they should be proportionate to each other. Huh. I'll, call, I'll talk to you about this after the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Take notes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, length, the link lengths, just try to make the lowers as long as possible because the longer they are, the less pinion, pinion angle change you have, the bigger arc it moves in. It's not going to do anything weird and sporadic. 
it's just gonna it'll maybe touch move. on the instant center because that kind of matters with the yeah I was gonna say not the in, instant center is is, <clears throat> is kind of a loose term but I, I actually yeah. I prefer the height of it to be in a in a crawler the height of it to be similar to the center of gravity of the car so the center of mass right yeah because so, then it's moving around it yeah yeah so but I know that like uh, on a comp crawler they'll they'll move it uh, it would be it'd be up so that the roll center increases right gets higher and then the vehicle is more stable on side hill so I know you can play that number a little bit but on a go fast car it's pretty much in front of the car by five six feet you know I'm just generalizing right now and and probably just at center of mass or center of gravity and then down or down a little bit, you know, gives the, the rear end a, a nice plush feel if you're going fast. Again, it's about speed. So if you're going fast, but um, if you bring the instant center back into the car, then the car will kick and pogo and hop around as you're going fast through the desert, you know, um, just generally speaking, you know, if it's too long, I think it has like a weird, like the, the vehicle will do weird stuff. It doesn't react like the throttle inputs and that kind of stuff. It's just kind of like a, becomes like almost a vanilla feeling car. Is that, you know what I'm trying to say, Dan? So if, if the incident is too far ahead, the links are too long, um, the car doesn't react to anything. It's sluggish or slower behind or something like that. Yeah. So you step on the gas, nothing happens. You get on the brakes, nothing happens. It's got a, it, there is no torque reaction or less, less of it. Oh, they're just like dragging, like pretty much <clears throat> dragging something behind you. Yeah. Kind yeah. Of. So like, uh, you know, like if you're, gonna time a jump or something like that and you want to get on the gas and try and get the front end to lift it doesn't do anything you know no matter how much power you have so kind of that i always kind of that instant center with the four link kind of eh, in front I, of the car a little bit i guess that would mess with that go back to that squadron and squad right yep. they're too far yep. back they're won't, won't yeah put, they're very similar they kind of they work together obviously yeah. yep i don't we got off track there we were talking about stuff and i i don't remember world but i mean and your cars you 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 pay a lot more attention to that than obviously we do. I mean, you're you're balancing the whole the whole system, the whole car. The drivers in the middle, the gas tanks on each side. They're both even. You're trying to balance out every single corner, so you have the same reaction no matter where you go, what you're doing. Yeah. So it's it's a little bit different than a, a trail beat at Cherokee. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're building cars that are fundamentally screwed from the beginning, with the motor being behind. The, the moment of inertia is in the wrong. Mm-hmm the wrong spot that's trying to make something work with a bunch of parts that weren't meant to run the ways that we're running them backwards backwards <laughs> makes it a lot harder and why do you why do you guys do that then is it just to get the the weight more centered or <clears throat> more to me it's from like packaging or mid-engine car is way easier than trying to build a front engine car and the driver they have the, the vision's better you have more foot room you can there's so much more room to mount things down low, low yep. which is a big deal. And if something's on fire, it's behind you, which kind of sucks because sometimes <laughs> you can't see it and you don't know you're on fire. But I think overall, I would I would rather build a mid-engine car as a race car than, than a so front same engine. Same here. Like like my my main reason is because if you look if you take the car as a whole and you think of what's going to take you out of KOH, for example, as a race, then there's you do a front engine car, you've got the exhaust coming down by the floorboards. It's going by the transmission cooler lines. You know, all this stuff goes on um, that can possibly lead to a 
some type of failure. You've got tighter clearance with drive lines and carrier bearings and things passing by them. And um, with a engine car, you can definitely keep the heat and the fuel and the mechanicals more separate from each other so that they don't interfere with each other and then possibly take, do something, you know, to wipe something else out. And, you know, so like, I know that for our cars, I don't, I don't think we've ever had a, any kind of heat soak or, or, um, vapor lock, vapor anything, lock yeah. issue, nothing like never. And, but when you do a car, that's got a fuel tank in the back, the fuel lines are running forward past the exhaust up to the motor, you know, um, they're just less more efficient, mm-hmm. just less efficient. And just, you know, but the downside is like Dan was saying is the differentials, you know, so we have to flip the diffs over, which actually is good for the front, believe it or not, but it's bad for the back one because we're on the wrong side of the ring gear. But that's a whole nother topic. <clears throat> Wait, yeah, we can, we can dive pretty deep into that, but it's the same thing as, or having, having the motor behind you and the radiators in the back windows. So now your lines are shorter. So. Yep. The fuel yep. tank is back there, or maybe in Joe's case, or saddle tanks and sitting next to you, which that makes the line shorter. Anytime you can make, if you can shorten plumbing, like trying to shave weight off a race car is really hard. And really the only way to do it, if you look at everybody's car, everyone has an LS motor. Everyone has a Turbo 400. Everyone has an Atlas or an SCS case. Everyone's running Gearworks 10s. They all have two-inch coilovers and three-inch bypasses. Like the knowns of the parts that are on there, everyone's the same weight. The only way you can save weight is changing the thicknesses of materials you use and using less of it and then shortening the wiring and the plumbing. And you you take plumbing and how much fluid is in all of those lines that run yep. from the back of the car all the way to the front of the car, that, that does add weight. And complexity and possible for heat soak for other stuff. And it, yeah. So... And the exhaust has to be longer. If the motor's in the back, the exhaust is super short, so you save weight there. I'm over here just seeing how many ice chests I can fit in the back of my bed. <laughs> <laughs> A lot. I've seen it. <laughs> okay. Get that um, forward. Next question we have. This is actually a question that I'm also curious about. When planning a build such as a roll cage and an exo cage, do you guys prefer planning on paper, digitally, or just winging it? Well, I don't build exo cages. Yeah, I can't stand ever. Cages. So. Okay, when you okay. build a roll cage. Okay, guys. <clears throat> I built one. Oh, I've built many. Yeah, I've built many. <laughs> Actually, I built two now that I think about yeah. it. I'm sorry. My first one was exo, yeah. <laughs> no, I've, I've done majority of stuff on paper, or it's been a long time since I built a cage inside of a vehicle, but you have to start with the main Sounds. hoop. So you... You take your measurements from inside the cab where you can fit, draw it on the floor or draw it on paper, bend it out, get it in there once it's fitted. Everything else, it's, you pretty just measure, measure as you go. At least that's that's faster for me just because I didn't learn, learn on a uh, computer program. Just draw it out and bend it. What about you guys? Yeah, how do you design your chassis? Is it all on paper, computer? What do you... I do a little bit of both. So yeah. I'm not, so, so you're a visionary. So Dan and Dan and Kevin are both way more, um, 3d CAD savvy than I am. They may not act like it. Kevin's really good. Dan, I think I'm not sure. Dabbles. Dan's a dabble. dabble. Dan's a, a, a he's a, a dab, he's a dabbler, but he's, I'm the Amish fabricator. Yeah. He, <laughs> he's but he chipping into stone. You know? Whereas actually I'm actually further behind than they are. So I do use CAD a, a ton, but it's mostly 2d CAD. Um, 
but I also wing it, you know, um, if it's weird, I'm sure Dan, you guys can relate to this, but there's been times where I've totally overthought a cage and done it like on the computer and laid all my Ben starts, all kind of stuff. And it doesn't turn out great. And then the times where I've been like, ah, screw it. I'm going to bend the sucker up. And I just get in there and go for it. It turns out way better. Mm-hmm. You know, it's cause I'm just yeah, kind of, I'm feel on better. autopilot. I'm just going for it rather than trying to overthink the, you know, where the bends are. And, Plus you, you can know. probably make more like adjustments on the fly, right? When you have a plan, yeah. it's hard to, like veer from that plan mm-hmm. yeah or, you know because now you're you're just getting frustrated and that's yeah i, I in the back in the day and i dan has has too but i did a lot of like cages like in like <clears throat> race cars and you know street cars that kind of stuff you know not a ton of them but i mean you know we're probably talking maybe maybe 10 20 you know so when you're working inside a car it's that really is my least enjoyable type of fab mm-hmm. i like yeah open space fab versus that you know but um and you kind of learn to just kind of some, there's a lot of things that you that a, that a CAD program can't tell you. Like you spend more time measuring than you do actually building yep. in that kind of situation, you know, if it's inside a cab anyway. Yeah, and I, I and myself in our shop, we we uh, use SolidWorks a lot. We do a lot of CAD stuff. We're not, we're not building the whole cage. Like we're not spending hours building the cage on the computer. It's, that's just a waste of time. There's no need for that. But for the main big, you know, B pillar, A pillar, whatever you got to build, it's just easier to like kind of, even if I'm going to give the plans to a guy out in the shop, I'm not necessarily building it, but I'll lay out, you know, the B hoop, which has six bends in it. Now they know where to market the whole tube, then how long to cut it. And it just makes that one go quicker and easier for them just to get it out and get it in there. And then they can do the small tubes going around it. So, I mean, I use, yeah, the computer CAD quite a bit. Yeah. But I'm not 3D dimensioning. I'm just doing 2D flat. You know, I could do it on paper too, but it already reads how much tube or material stretched in that, that corner. So that's always a hard thing to, to figure out. Just cut it long and just start bending to get there. I will say this, and maybe Dan can chime in. Interior cages are probably the one that's the, the most screwed up. Like people build some very unsafe interior cages. Mm-hmm. Like if you're home building and you, you do it wrong, it's... One time use. <clears throat> yeah, one time use. And so the methodology for building an interior cage, you know, the desert guys have it down. You know, you cut holes in the floor, you drop the cage down, you weld it all the way out. If it's pulled back up, you have plates that go on the chassis. If with a little bit of research, if, if you do the cage right, you're good. But that's one area you should never shortcut. Yeah, I don't know how my cage is still in, in my truck. I have an interior cage hit my head all the time. I built it wrong. I built it eight years ago in like a weekend. It was it was dumb because I wanted to go. And I built my I have extended cab Toyotas and my B pillar and my C pillar are too short. They're like four inches short than the than the cab. I didn't have enough material, so I was like, that's what it is. Uh, I just made my seat lower. <laughs> and um, half, uh, three quarters of my cage is welded. There's still gaps on top because I didn't was too lazy to drop it down and, and finish those welds. And now that more and more sheet metal is getting ripped back, I can finally get to those welds. <laughs> but it's uh, I've, I've had that thing upside down so many times and rolled it endlessly over and over in the desert it's just it's still there I and mean, it's bent to hell but it's uh it's still there and i'm surprised but it's yeah. i've done a few cages where i've cut i've cut the roof off after i've yeah. gotten it all tacked on and burned it through i've cut holes in people's dash i've taken the windows out and connected it to the a-pillar and gone down through the floor but you're you're pretty much limited on what the what the customer will let you do yeah what do they, like, they want to spend you know it's like either you're well, doing yeah, that yourself too. you're like oh, i'm gonna cut your roof off they go what what do you mean <laughs> you're cutting my roof off <laughs> like, which which actually brings me to one point i know that all three of us all three of us will easily turn away work if it's not like if 
a guy came to Dan and said, "Hey Dan, can you do this?" And Dan's like, "That's not the right, not the right way. No, no, I won't do it that way. <laughs> nope. And I'm kind of the same way. Like I'll, I'll just well straight. I don't, I don't. I'll turn away work. No problem. I have no issue telling the guy no. If especially if it's if he's asking me to do something that's fundamentally wrong. Yeah. Well, right? why would you want involvement in something that's really dangerous? Especially yeah. if people have like a family rig and they want to take their wife out or their kids and things like that. Then that kind of involvement that's really scary. So I think you guys are making the right decision. Even, even beyond that. It's kind of that fab- that stubborn fabricator thing. Like I know that all three of us are pretty driven to do things the right way. So even if you took stubborn. safety out of it, it's stubbornness. Yeah, I mean, okay. it's stubbornness. you know, even if you took safety out of it, it's got to be done right. Like like Dan's not gonna weld something, or Kevin's not gonna build a, a bracket for someone that he knows is junk. We're gonna you know? fail, or, or yeah, yeah, you know, and it's not a signature of who he is. You know, absolutely. So, You're putting your name. That's putting your stamp on your work. So yeah. I absolutely respect that. Yeah, we had a guy with a D-Max come in the other day with a straight axle it from some other guy, but um, it's a piece of inch and a quarter, maybe inch and three. It was inch and a quarter tie rod. I don't know how thick it was, but they halfway welded some jam nuts on the end, and that's what they threaded their tie rod together. It wasn't even fully welded. It wasn't nothing. It was just you know bird poop welds around a jam nut. It's probably zinc coated and just an inch and a quarter tube. I mean, it was I was scared. I'm like, we're fixing this while we fix your brakes. He's like, oh, okay, I guess. <laughs> Back on the the roll cage design and oh, yeah. and uh, making, if if someone knew where to come to you and ask you for advice, like what would you be like? Hey, these are the things you need to do when you're making a cage. Like, here's how you. I know they're so versatile. Like you can go inside, outside, whatever. Even if it's an exo cage, like what would you say structurally? What you want someone to be doing? Less bends and more triangulation. Yeah, I'm all for less less bends. Just make the biggest things. Make sure your notches are good, because as long as long as they're touching and you've got them really tight in there, and if it is an exo cage and you can't get all the way around it, and you you still left, let's say there's three quarters of an inch on the backside that faces the cab that you can't get to. If it if it's a good notch and you welded it good around the outside, it's probably going to be fine. Yeah, you're gonna have you're gonna have two materials hitting each other. You're not gonna have, you know, a gap that's not touching anything. Now you're just letting it flex and it's gonna flex. And now you're using the weld material as your filler, and that's not not the right way to. Yeah. So to expand on that though, nodes, no dead ends, no tubes laying in the middle of a tube with no backside support. Um, you know, like Kevin was saying, proper triangulation. You know. it's a rear if it's a cage you know the b pillars at least at least a main single diagonal you know yeah that's the backbone of the, the whole thing is the yeah. b pillar protecting yep. your head yep so case cage design is primary and i would i'm gonna go on a limb here right now and i would say cage welding is actually secondary mm-hmm. meaning you want the welds to be good but you can take a guy with a 110 welder mig welder and if you design the cage top notch and he glues it together it's probably going to be okay. You know, um, obviously well, you can get enough amps out of a 110 meg welder to burn eighth inch material. Like if yeah. you can't penetrate eighth inch material, then you have no business building a cage. <laughs> yeah. Um, someone, someone else I knew, knew you guys were coming on. Wanted me to ask you this. So, uh, it's about meg welding tube properly. And how do you get the, or not properly, I guess properly would be like the penetration, right? But actually, making your welds look nice and 
the way he was explaining it was when you start, you know, when you start, it's cold. And when you stop, it's hot. So it's, it's, it's high. Just note that I'm pointing at Dan. Yeah, yeah. Right <laughs> um, I prefer, oh, oh, if I'm going to make well the cage, which is rare, I like, I like 030 wire. It's a little more controllable than, than 035 when, you know, 5,000 doesn't sound like a lot, but it, it's actually quite a bit when you're shoving wire out. But I, I usually set the machine up. It'd be a little slower on wire speed. And even in the wintertime, I do it. I do it a lot. I'll take a map gas torch and I go around, go around the joint and try to get, get it slightly warm. Tack it on, you know, 180 degrees from each other. And you can do it in four sections. I try to do 180 wherever I can. So I start on one, one corner come down and around the face and then back up to the other the other side and as far as patterns to make it look nice I mean you can there's so many ways you can move move the gun to manipulate it and make make the dimes that look good, everybody yeah. likes but I, I generally move in a, in a J so I'd be on the bottom the bottom tube and then come back up into the, the upper tube and then move forward back into the bottom and then back up into the top or just straight forward and back i don't i've never really done circles yeah i don't do circles because I, I feel the circles just kind of leave an overlap unless you're staying you pay attention and you're making sure you stay in the puddle and not jumping forward but that's kind of why i like i like the j just because you're you're constantly in the puddle but you're feeding it back and you're building up the material so the, the well is con convex instead of concaved or flush and I always kind of compare it to like an E-clip, like my weld, not like a C, but I, I always bring your, you always want to bring that puddle. You always want to keep that puddle going. You don't want to jump out of that puddle where you're creating that cold dead zone under that puddle. You want to keep it, the sides going and, and really bring it all the way through. Like a cursive E. Like a cursive E. Or, or a question like mark. I always say question mark. But yeah. Yeah. Question mark. Yeah. Because yeah, we don't know what we're doing. So. Yeah. No, what the hell we're doing. No. I guess what, one important thing though, Dan, is our... Kevin, I, I think the mistake that people make is they pull the wire out of the puddle. I know that's one big yeah. issue. So, Well, then when you start, just like you said, you start on one side and it's cold, which is what I try to do with the map gas torch and heat it up a little bit. And you could start on the other side of your tack and work your way around. But if you're going around an inch and three quarter or two inch diameter tube, and it's not going to take very long for it to heat up. So by the time you're <clears throat> from just trying to word this correctly because we can't show pictures you're starting on the upper left and you come down to the point of the fish mouth it's going to be hotter and now you're going you went from kind of downhill and now you're trying to burn uphill and you've you've put heat into the materials and now you're it's gonna melt you're going to have to compensate for that and start moving quicker you're going to blow a hole in it or there's some guys that set the machine relatively low so they can move slower and have more control but i think i don't necessarily agree with that if you just you set it to what the machine needs to be and you you move accordingly and you can change the closer you have the contact tip you can you can move it away and long arc it to try to cool it down and then move move the tip back closer to the material or bring it back out as you're making the it will make a difference Making a little bit, pattern. but it's a, it's a difference for sure. Yeah. 
What about the? Did you did you explain like push pull? Do you change your angle too? When you're and that's what, yeah, and that's what I was gonna say too. I went back to your point. The three O, I was I used three O on a lot of things. I mean, you're only burning eighth inch material. You're not using structural three five for quarter three. It's whatever. It's like it's a small amount of material. You look at TIG welds. It's a small weld. You don't need a giant half inch weld on on eighth inch DOM or or less tubing. Um, where you're take welding, you're using generally a sixteenth or yeah, three thirty second wire. As long as your notch is there, it's your contact. Well, um, the weld is small, but the, yeah. the wire is bigger than what you would use in a MIG weld. But that's because you're shoving wire out at such a higher rate of speed than dabbing it in, into the puddle. Yeah, and again, like the three O, I slow mine down so it's more controllable. So I can really, I can sit in a puddle and really make it do what I want it to do. Um, welding, we have a uh, you know our our manufacturing side our the guys who weld all day, they have three five and they're doing quarter inch and they just kind of want to get the good weld, but they penetration. But me, I'm, I'm not, it's not artwork, but you want to make sure that you're making decent welds on, on the DOM. And yeah, the push pull thing, it's, it depends if you're, you know, vertical, flat overhead. Um, a lot of times it's a lot easier to push, but you're, you know, you're pushing, you're not bringing contaminants back into it. And yeah, it's, it, there's a whole it, it, angles are huge for sure. And you can't always get that perfect angle, but, just got to move with it does tick welding help with like the heat affected zone too as far as strength or does that even come into your come into play with you guys this is one of the can of worms but <clears throat> basically the with a, with a tig weld the heat affected zone is more concentrated so um it's like a smaller range right like, yep yeah, yep okay. so it's a smaller range but it's but it's also uh i would say more con or you have a higher heat component at the joint but it's not spread out among, amongst the tube as much, which actually in some ways is kind of a bad thing, mm. believe it or not. Because the, the bigger the, the HAZ is, the heat effective zone is, the more um, ductile the tube will be when, it, when stress travels to the joint. So if the stress travels through the tube to your weld joint and you have a very narrow HAZ, that actually means that you're, when it's being stressed, that stress peak is steeper, right? Is that I'm saying it the right way? steeper which will cause it to fracture sooner whereas if you have a bigger haz you'll end up having a bigger zone for the stress to slowly deform the end of the tube before it gets to the joint does that make sense am i yeah, saying the right if, way because if you crash the weld's going to stay with your tube because it's so yeah. heated all over the tube that's going to snap first yeah yeah so um if you can spread it out across the tubes more evenly than yeah so a crazy thing is like nascar all mig welded robots you know um and they've done extensive testing and so uh you you're not going to see a tickle in nascar chassis doesn't happen so there's there's rules there's there's definitely an argument on which one's actually truly stronger you know um but again it comes back to the design of the chassis so personally I think Dan's kind of agreeing with me here, but TIG welding gives you a cleaner finish, a cleaner end result, and done properly. It's incredibly strong, especially when the cage is, is done, you know, designed properly as well. So I think ultimately the joint is only as strong as the person putting it together. Yeah. Whoever's welding it. If you can have, there's tons of examples of it all over the internet now. <laughs> really nice, fancy TIG welds that are underfilled. Or just pulsed together or fused together. Yep. Lack of rod. Everyone's just worried about. There's color. a lot of Instagram heroes right now that are that are doing <laughs> it very very improperly. Right. Yeah. Do, do you guys 
play around with different um, uh, filler types, or do you just ER 80, 70? Just depends. Yeah. Yeah. If it was, um, I only use ER 80 or 4130 for suspension parts or anything that was going to get heat treated, which I know Joe disagrees with me about. Anything that wasn't going to get heat treated, I always just use the ER 70. There's no, no reason to use 4130 or uh, ER80 on the chassis. I don't necessarily disagree with Dan, but there's things that, so I'll give some examples. If it's a custom fabricated pitman arm out of really thin chromoly, for example, um, and ER80 to me is a great you know, filler to use there, we know that's going to be heat treated and it'll be fine. When it's parts that are going to be impacted, like hit with rocks and, and you're going to smash into things, then I prefer the ductility of a of ER seventy, even if it's in a heat treated part. But um, we're honestly talking like we're 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 yeah. splitting hairs, you right. know. Yeah. So this concludes part one of this episode. Please tune in in a few weeks for part two. Did it, 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 did it,